Well, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're picking up where we left off last week in chapter 7. And what we saw in chapter 7 was good. We saw Israel, uh, in a sense, nationally repent, experience true repentance, that they not only just lamented, they weren't just sad, but that they went and took action, bore fruit in keeping with repentance. They removed the idols, and they served Yahweh alone. And then when the Philistines come bearing down again, they don't turn back to religious tchotchkeism and just looking for trinkets and talismans to bail them out. They go to Samuel and say, pray for us. Perhaps God will be pleased to save us. And God is pleased, and God does save them. And so then Samuel raises that Ebenezer. Some, uh, some unspecified stone or structure of stone. That's a monument to the people of Israel saying, God has helped us to this far. He brought us this victory. He's carried us all the way from, they're thinking back to Moses in uh, the Exodus. He's brought us all the way from there to here, and he will continue to care for us. So then we get to chapter 8. That's where they are then. And here we get to chapter 8. And it opens with verses 1 through 3 in a bit of a tragic scenario. It happened when Samuel was old that he appointed his son judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, the name of his second Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after greedy gain and took bribes and caused justice to turn aside. Faithful, here's the first principle we look at in verses 1 through 3. Faithful parents can have rebellious kids. Samuel is a faithful man. We've seen him be the godly example in chapter 7 all the way through, but then even going back to his childhood and then early development as what we would identify nowadays as like a junior priest, is a faithful man, a godly man. He followed God closely and diligently, but we do not control our children's outcomes. No matter what it is that we do, they will answer for their own lives at some point. And we for ours. And God is sovereign over our kids. So what do we do? We pray for them. We, that's what we must be doing. Pray for them. There shouldn't be a day go by that we don't, as parents, as grandparents, as aunts and uncles, as church members with kids in our church, that we don't bring the names of those kids before the Most High and plead His mercies upon their lives. Because if Samuel's kids can go awry, then certainly ours can as well. Because God spoke directly to Samuel. None of us are having that kind of interaction with God. And if it can happen to him, it can happen to any of us. But we also see here that faithful parents can be blind to their kids. Though they don't walk in his ways, what does verse 1 say that he did? He appointed them judges. He went ahead and put them in spiritual authority, even though they don't walk in his ways, meaning they're not following God. Why would he appoint his sons to that role? It's so easy to see it when it's not you and your kids. It's so easy to see. It. We know that they, well, he's thinking maybe, well, I can, I can control them. If I have them here, then I can control them. I'm here. I'll do that. Well, they've watched me for years, so eventually that's going to kick in for them. They're just going to they're gonna get it. And oh, they'll, they will mature. They'll grow. This is a phase. They'll grow out of it. No, it's not great. But, you know, it usually takes someone outside of your immediate family to honestly evaluate your kids. It's usually what it takes. There's been plenty of times that I've had 
uh, in coaching, uh, when I was coaching junior high, I would have parents, and I'm, at the time, when I was coaching junior high, I'd be like 22, 23, 24 years old. I mean, I'm barely out of college. And the parents coming to me and talking about their kids, and it's just this, this angel baby from heaven who's also destined for the NFL. And I'm like, are we talking about the same kid? This kid is awful. He doesn't listen to anything. He can't show up on time. He doesn't even know which way this belt works. But you think he's a genius. And then, I mean, I, I'm not kidding. I had this one mom come to me and say that her son was in detention. So my rule as a coach was if you ever get detention, then when you get out of detention and you come to practice late, you're going to run until practice is over. I don't care how hot it is, you'll run. You might throw up, but that's no excuse. You keep running until it's over. So you'll learn to not get detention when you're on my team. So then the mom comes to me when this boy gets detention. She goes, just want you to know, Johnny got detention. And we just want you to know, coach, we aren't going to punish him at home for this. He, you know, he hit that kid with a book, but that kid was going to try to rub a spider on him. And hey, I might have done the same thing. And so I was like, okay, ma'am, John, you know the rule. Start running. He's going to run because the parents were just blind to this kid. This is Samuel. You put your kids in charge, and, and you are oblivious to them. Why would you do this? This is the pattern that you've just gone through. There's also no pattern of nepotism in the judges. None of them appoint their kids to secede them, to come, to come after them. And Samuel does that, and his kids are worthless. Who are they like? They're like Hophni and Phinehas. They end up being like Hophni and Phinehas. That Samuel, sadly, in this area of his life, is following after Hophni and after after Eli. Both of them overlook their son's wickedness. Both of them appoint their sons to positions of religious influence amongst the people of God. So we need to have a warning here. We have to hear this today. You do become like your mentors. As much as Eli was not what Samuel should have been like, we saw Eli be uh, uh, right thinking and believing, but spineless. He could think right, but couldn't do right. And Samuel, as much as he's different than Eli, we see him be exactly the same in this area. Who you are around doesn't matter what you say. Well, I don't really believe like them. I'm not really like them. That's why I tell people who are in churches that are just unfaithful, Get out of there. You don't have to come here, but you need to go to a faithful church somewhere. Don't just be there because otherwise you're going to risk running into this Samuel Eli debacle where you do pick up things that you're just around them. And that's a biblical concept. You've heard this before, but you didn't know it's from the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Your grandma used to say that to you all the time. That's straight out of the scriptures. You will eventually be like who you are around in some ways. That's always the case. And Samuel is an example of that, sadly, for us. So what happens in response? That's the scene now. After this Ebenezer moment, you have this unfaithful sons, and everybody notices it except Samuel. Look at verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. So the elders, these leaders of the 12 tribes, they assemble themselves and come to Samuel. And the first thing that they say is not something most people want to hear. You're old. You're old. So, I mean, you're going to die soon, just so you know. And guess what? Your sons do not walk in your ways. Samuel, 
you're about to not be the leader anymore and your successors are worthless. They don't walk in the ways of faithfulness. They come and ask for this now. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. That's what we want. We want a king. Now, here's where the story starts to become familiar. Now, the book of 1 Samuel is starting to make shape in what's familiar to us. Because if you've been around the church at all, you know the king that's coming is Saul, and they have to get to this process. And what gets harped on right here in verse 5 is this. Now, point a king for us to judge us like all the nations. And then everybody goes, see, look, that's it. That was their big problem. They wanted to be like everybody else. But it's not that simple. Deuteronomy 17, in the, in the Old Covenant law, Moses writes down God's directives for getting a king. We're going to read it in a little bit. But it says, there will come a day when you ask to have a king like the nations, and God will be pleased to give you a king. So the problem, what everybody harps on right here is like, see, they wanted to be everybody like everybody else. And they do, but there's more to it than that. The, the monarch is not, a, a monarch, having a king, a monarch, that's not incompatible with a theocracy. God's plan centuries before Samuel was there to be a king in Israel. Because if Jesus is the king of kings, we have to have a series of unacceptable kings at some point, And it's not because God just said, nah, you guys want a king, whatever. Now, okay, now I'll go ahead and make that part of Jesus's identity. No, they were always going to have a king. Here's the issue. It's their motive. This is what one commentator said. He said, it's not monarchy, but trust in monarchy that is the villain. See, they want a king like the nation. That's every, everybody else has a king. That's the government that everybody has. And God's not opposed to them having a king. It's you trusting in that king to do what God can only do. You've had judges, and they've functioned like kings, except for they don't have hereditary successive leadership. But Gideon's a king, essentially. Samson's like a king. He's the guy in charge of everything, and then he lives in the big house, and he fights the bad guys and protects everybody. But that's not the issue, is them wanting a king it's that they think that a king is going to do for them what they don't believe God will do. It's the trust in the monarchy, not the monarchy itself. See, their true motive is going to be on display in verse 20, which we'll get to. But it says what it reveals is a heart of if we have a king, a human king, he will save us. He will protect us. It's the same error as chapter 4. You remember what they did in chapter four when they go and parade out the Ark of the Covenant? Like this golden box is going to save us. It's going to force God into acting. We're going to go ahead and, and have a mechanistic way of forcing God to protect us or for us guaranteeing protection in some way by our pulling of levers. And it was in that chapter, chapter four, it was based on superstition. But now they've just grown up a little bit and it's based on politics. If we get the right politics then we'll be safe, then we'll be secure, then everything will be good. We will force and bring about mechanistically the happiness that we want. So Samuel hears these things, and he knows what they're saying in part is true. It can't be that Samuel's sons become kings or become the rulers. But the thing was evil in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed to Yahweh. So his instinct is to pray. He's initially very offended, 
and he can see their sinful hearts beyond their good reason. He sees their sinful hearts and his instinct is to pray. And that's a good instinct. That's, we should have that instinct. Whatever comes our way, whatever, whatever crosses our path that is difficult, that is contradictory, the instinct should be, the, the reflex should be to pray. And Samuel does. The first thing he does is take it to the Lord. And then verse seven, then Yahweh said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. See, Samuel, you're mad for the wrong reasons. You're mad because they think they've rejected you. It's not about you. They've rejected me. You're going to die eventually anyways, and they won't have you anyways. They've rejected me. They want to set up a system to where they do not have to rely exclusively on me. And whether you have a king or a judge or a priest or whoever leading you, that's the heart issue. Samuel are offended for the wrong reason. And this is just the latest in a long line of rebellions. Look at verse 8. This is like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day. And that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Samuel, they're only doing to you what they've been doing to me since I brought them out. They, what they've been doing since Exodus 15, that's what they are doing to you. So you're just getting a little bit of a taste of what it's like. They've been rejecting God and rebelling against him since Moses, Samuel. So now, verse 9, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly testify to them and tell them of the custom of the king who will reign over them. Now, the custom of the king in verse 10 through 18, God says, we're going to do what they say. Listen to them. They're rejecting me. They're not rejecting you. But what I want you to do is get it on record that they were told exactly what a king could be like. They need to know this, that when you desire to put your faith in a person for protection, for flourishing, for provision, for all of these things that you used to look to me for exclusively, if you're going to put your hope elsewhere, you need to know how that can go. You need to know the ways that, that will backfire on you. So he warns of the oppression. We read it earlier, but what I just want to reiterate is the times that he says he will take. A human king will mostly do to you, people, is take from you. So look at verse 11. He will take your sons. Verse 13, he will also take your daughters. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields. Verse 15, he will take a tenth of your seed. Look at verse 16, he will also take your male slaves. Verse 17, he will take a tenth of your flocks. He will take, he will take, he will take, he will take. Now, what has God done to the people of God up to this point. He has given, he has given, he has given, he has given. What, if the people of God were to be honest in this moment and say, what has God done for you? He's only given, gave you freedom from Egypt. He's given you provision in the wilderness. He's given you protection every single time you sin against him and you cry out in repentance and faith. He saves you from that evil oppressor. He just keeps giving to you, and what a human king will do is take. He's just going to take, because guess what? Governments, established, entrenched, bureaucratic governments, because they don't have no concept of this. They're essentially, think of their judges in the book of Judges and all the way up to Samuel. Think of it like Native American tribes. The bad guys come, a strong chief rises up, rallies the people, and beats off the bad guys. But he's just a cheat. There's no structure to this. He's just who we're following at the time because that's who we're following. 
but you're going to build an entrenched, structured, bureaucratic government, here's what's going to happen. They got to have money because they don't have any jobs to bring in their own money. You got to pay them. And they don't have people because they don't just pop up and show up with people. They're going to take your sons to be in their army. They're going to take your daughters to serve in their castles. They got to get them from somewhere. And there's going to be on top of the tithe that you pay to God, you're going to have to pay to the government. Just so you know, and then you have a potential for this. So when, when uh, Deuteronomy 17 is written and Moses puts that lays out there, this is what a king should look like. He says, you will have a king like the nations. And then it goes on to describe how he won't be like the nation's kings. You'll have a king like they, and they have a king. You both call them kings, but the one in Israel that's a true good king won't do these things to you. He won't steal your daughters to build up a harem for himself. He won't abuse you by taxing you to death. He won't do any of these things. And his main job is going to be to enforce the law that he makes a written copy of in the presence of a priest. It lays that out. But what Samuel is saying is, yeah, you're opening yourself up to the abuse of this. And then you'll eventually get to a place to where you realize this was a mistake. And you'll cry out to God in verse 18, but Yahweh will not answer you in that day. God tells Samuel, go warn them at this moment. This is irreversible. Because once you give people a taste of authority, then they will never lose it. Once you give a man complete authority, he will be absolutely corrupted by it. And there will always be a perpetual jump ball for it. And what jump ball is, basketball, you throw the ball in the air, everybody jumps trying to get it. That's what you see from after David's life, after Solomon's life, to the end of the, of the Old Testament when they finally get booted out of the land. Just fighting and killing and trying to take the kingship over and over and over and over and over and over. That's what's going to happen. There's no going back because once, they have, once you have a king, it's not going to go back. Now, the people, what do they do? They hear Samuel's warning and you go, you know what? We're going to think about this. We're going to really go back and contemplate. No, they nevertheless, verse 19, people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. That's not a people asking God for something. No, this is going to happen, Samuel. There shall be a king. And then what is he going to do? So that we may be like all the nations. What is he going to do for you, this king? Our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Do you know what God told Israel right before the, the, the legion of Egypt's army caught up to them at the Red Sea? Moses is told from God, go and tell the people to sit down and be quiet and I will fight for them. Just watch me fight for you. And then what happened just a chapter before in chapter 7? The Philistines are so confused, they kill themselves. Because God thundered. That's how best as you can be described. God makes thunder, makes loud noise. Philistines kill themselves. You win the war. But now you go, no, we want a human king and he will fight for us. He will keep us safe. He will ensure prosperity. He will do all of these things for us. See, that's their heart problem. Not the king itself, but the trust in it. They are impetuous children. They want what they want and they're not going to change their mind. So Samuel prays, verse 21, Samuel heard all the words of the people and he repeated them in the hearing of Yahweh. Not as if God didn't hear it, but he's just, it's all going on the record in a sense to think of it like that. God will know and take note. You have heard what the people said. 
and you people have heard what God has said. And so God consents in verse 22. Then Yahweh said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. So the, the reason of including that, God says we're going to do this. God consents in some way, but this is always his plan. He's not consenting. He's not being persuaded. You didn't twist God's arm. It's just happening in his way. And so for you, it looks like something is changing, but this is God's ordained plan all along. And then Samuel lets him know, hey, look, this is such a big deal. We ain't going to pick one today. So everybody go back to your cities. This is going to be a process. And this is going to be grueling. And you're going to see from the beginning how, at least at the bare minimum, inconvenient it is to have a monarchy just like everybody else. But what I want to do with this last few minutes, last seven minutes here, is that the inevitability of the kingship. Because what often happens in, the, in just simplicity and trivializing for Samuel 8 is we say the problem is they just want to be like everybody else. And they certainly do. They want to be like everybody else. They want to look just like everybody else. Nobody, the, the struggle of the people of God is always, I don't want to look different. That we're always trying, is certainly in the United States, is how can we be Christians but least, look the least weird? How do we look like Jesus and act like Christ, but nobody really knows? And how do we do everything that they do out there in here? But we'll just say that everything that we do that they do, we're just doing it differently and for the glory of God and also not as good because we have less money. We're always struggling with that issue. So that is true with the people of God. If you think about it, what did God tell his, his repeated refrain in the book of Leviticus before they are officially a people in their own land? He tells them, you must be holy. Why? Because I am holy. So just change those words holy. You must be different because I am different. And eventually, in all of our hearts, and we see in various churches and denominations, we get tired of being different. We think I can be holy, but not be different. That's what the word means, set apart, different. So that's certainly part of the issue. But when we make that all that it is, it, it disagrees with the entirety of the previous books of the Old Testament. Having a king is not a problem. Let's go ahead and prove that. Genesis 17, God's promise to Abraham in verse 6. He says, and I will make you, Abraham, exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will go forth from you. So if the sin was them asking for a king, then God led them to that by their forefather, Abraham. If kings are going to come from him, and he is the progenitor of the nation of Israel, then we have some incongruity here. King is not the problem. Genesis 49.10, this is at the end of Jacob's life. He brings his 12 sons in for the blessings. This is a traditional thing to do in the ancient world is to bless your sons and pronounce a blessing over them before you die. And he gets to Judah and he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. A scepter is not a toy. It's the mark of the ruler of a king. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That sounds like a king coming from Judah. And who is that king? First, it's David. Ultimately, it's Jesus. Then go to Deuteronomy 17. This is the passage that I've been talking about. Let's just read it so you understand it. Verse 14 and following. When you enter the land which Yahweh your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who surround me, you shall surely set a king. 
over you, whom Yahweh your God chooses, one from among your brothers, and you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your brother. Moreover, horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Yahweh has said to you, shall never again return that way. And he, that king, shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. See Solomon. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Nor Now it will be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God, to carefully observe all the words of his law and these statutes, and that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he may prolong his days in the kingdom, he and his sons in the midst of Israel. That doesn't sound in any way like God as opposed to the people having a king. It sounds like when you have a king, this is what he should be like. And what does that king sound like? That king sounds like just the first among equals. It sounds like somebody who's, he's not supposed to think he's better than everybody else. That's what all kings do. He's not supposed to abuse the people by overtaxing them and by stealing their daughters to be his wives. He's not supposed to be a foreigner, meaning you don't make allegiances with other people. You get him from you. He comes from you. What this really sounds like also is a pastor. He's supposed to come from the same people. He's not better than the people. He's supposed to be about the word of God, reading it every day and making sure that everybody is functioning according to it. He is a shepherd king. But what Samuel was warning them from God was saying, you, you open with that, but what you're going to end up with because of your hearts, you're going to end up with a despot. You're going to end up with a tyrant. And that's what happens. And before you can even get there, though, you have the problem of kinglessness. What's the last verse of the book of Judges? Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Own eyes. Meaning, if you had a king... Everyone wouldn't be doing what's right in their own eyes. A king would be enforcing God's word and not allowing chaos to exist. And then in the very book of 1 Samuel, remember Hannah? Remember her song that she sings after she has the baby? Part of that song comes in verse 10 of chapter 2. It says, those who contend with Yahweh will be dismayed. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. Yahweh will render justice to the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, we know that that king is, is seen personified, that, that good king in David, but David's still a shadow. Christ is the ultimate substance. So the problem is not having or wanting a king, because a monarch could exist in a theocracy. You could have a king who's subservient to God. That could be true. The problem is not trusting God nor trusting his timing. They wanted protection and they wanted security and they wanted it by mechanical and not spiritual means. That's their problem. And Saul fulfills the first king out of the gate. He fulfills all of Samuel's warnings. Everything that he said, this is what the king's going to do. It's going to hurt you. Saul does all of those things. The first one. It wasn't like you had a few good ones and then it kind of got bad. The first one does all of those things. And then you have a reboot with David who doesn't do those things. Solomon starts out not doing those things, then does all those things, and so do all the rest. 
Saul fulfills that horrible warning. The true Deuteronomy 17 king is David, but he's just a true shadow. The true king of Deuteronomy 17, who always lives and conducts the people according to the word of God, who never strays from the right or to the left, who sacrifices himself, not viewing himself as above the people of God, like Christ, according to Philippians 2. That's Jesus. He is that king. He is the point of it all. You get to the end of, well, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. You think, why do we have six books? Six long books. Lots of names, lots of back and forth, lots of wars and numbers and some long genealogies. And, but it's just kings doing this and kings doing that. You got six books of that in the Old Testament. Why? You're supposed to get to the end of that and go, when is this going to be over? When are we going to finally have that king? Can, is it even possible? And cry out to God, can we have that king that we got a, just a whiff of in Deuteronomy 17? And we got a small glimpse of a momentary flash of light with David. When are we going to have the one who is always and permanently and perfectly that? Makes you cry out for Jesus. So here's our, our application from this. I got it from commentator Dale Ralph Davis. He said this. He said, because some of our idolatry is so sophisticated and appears so reasonable, it can be extremely difficult to defeat. And that's in reference to Israel asking for a king. Samuel, you're old. That's true. Samuel, your kids are worthless. That's true. Samuel, give us a king. That's biblical. But their hearts were godless. So you look at the deceptiveness of idolatry in the heart. This is advanced idolatry. See, idolatry 101 is chapter four. Go get the gold box and parade that sucker out. We'll be fine. This is idolatry 401, senior level adult, uh, idolatry. We're going to hide it behind lots of facts and even a biblical concept. But what we really want is an idol and not the one true God. So my question for you to leave you with on our last evening service for a while is, do you have idols like this? Because I do. I know we do. So let's do the hard work of cutting down those high places in our hearts that look real sophisticated and really religious. Let's do the work, unlike Israel being willing to do in chapter eight. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the work that you do in exposing the idols in our hearts. We see ourselves in chapter eight. It's easy to look at a people and just scoff at them and, and deride them and, and feel prideful as if we would never descend to such, such uh, foolery, that we would never experience great blessing from you in one chapter and the very next chapter turn around and reject you. But we do we would do that, and we do that all the time. Well, we ask that you would give us clarity, incisive eyes into our own hearts to find those idols, because they're there. They are there in my heart. And may we do that work daily, regularly, never, never think that we're over that, where we, we see so much ourselves in Israel, and we're good 
at hiding what we want and lack of faith in you behind seemingly good and noble and logical even reasons. Keep us from that. Give us gut-level honesty with ourselves so that we can be gut-level honest with you and our brothers and sisters. Lord, we do thank you that you have provided for us a king of kings, that Jesus is our perfect king, that that little glimpse of, of what he could be like in Deuteronomy 17 and, and the little flash of light of David's life, we, we long for that permanently, and we see that. We see that in the Gospels. We see that in the rest of the New Testament. We certainly see it in the book of Revelation where that king comes and he enforces his good and right and invincible authority on all of creation. And he provides for and protects his people and he walls out and punishes all evil. We thank you for such a king who rides on a white horse, who's a sword comes out of his mouth and his robe is drenched in blood and he is forcing in the kingdom that no one in the world wants. We thank you for a king who is good, who is strong, but who is merciful and who is tender to his people. We know that we will see in the coming chapters when we gather again in the evenings and someday a king that's not like that in Saul. And we know that we have many of those characteristics. We ask that you would keep us at our church as elders and deacons from Saul-like behavior, from being a despot who is demanding to his people, but that we would be like the shepherd kings of 1 Peter 5, that we don't lord authority over your flock, but we are in and among your flock. May we be that way and protect our church perpetually in that way. And Lord, we ask again, as we conclude this Lord's Day, that you would watch over us as we go through our small and seemingly and historically insignificant wilderness wandering of going and, and renting from Grace Point Fellowship. Be with us in those, in those days and months. May they be short, but may they be rich. May we redeem the time that we're there. May it be useful to not only our sanctification and our uh, realignment, our own personal reformation, semper reformanda, always reforming back to your word. But more importantly, that even in these days that we would glorify you and that we would be unashamed to live differently because we worship a holy God who has insisted that we be holy, that others might see him as holy. Glorify yourself through us in these coming months. And we ask this humbly in Christ's name. Amen.